The scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 22, from the parable of the wedding feast. So please open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 22. This is a parable spoken by Christ. As such, this is the infallible Word of God. So, congregation, as I read, please do remember that while the grass may wither, the Word of the Lord will not pass away. This is true. Matthew chapter 22, beginning from verse 1 to verse 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves, have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servant, treated him shamefully, and killed him. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to, the, to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the the attendants, Bind him, hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let us bow our heads. Almighty God, as we come before your word this morning, we pray that the Spirit who helped Matthew to write down this word, this parable of Christ faithfully and inerrantly, would also help us this morning to see the deep things of this text, help us to see how our life is included as a part of this parable, and Lord, help us to live it as well. And Lord, may your spirit also help this weak and broken vessel to faithfully expound your word. We give you thanks, and we pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation, when was the last time you received a wedding invitation? When was the last time you received a wedding invitation? And what were your deciding factors in deciding whether to RSVP 
or not? Do you consider first who is it that's inviting? Whether it's your good friend, your childhood friend who you grew up together, or whether it's someone whom you barely know from work. Do you consider secondly where the wedding is to take place? Whether it's out here close in the greater Seattle area, or perhaps it's somewhere far away. It's a beautiful destination wedding in the Caribbean, which sounds like a very nice place, but it's very, very far away. Do you also consider, thirdly, when is it? Because, well, if, it's, it's, if it falls on a holiday, yeah, then you're more likely to be able to go. But if it happens to be taking place during a work day for you, then you will have to think about whether you have that time which you can take off from work. And lastly, do you also consider what's the cheapest item on the registry? Because if your childhood friend, your good buddy from that you grew up together, if he is willing to pay for your airline ticket, airplane ticket, and provide you the accommodation to go to his beautiful wedding in the Caribbean, but the cheapest item on the registry is $5,000, you may say, well, I love your friend, but um, I'm busy. Do you consider all these things? Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, I'm bringing this up because before us this morning is a parable of a wedding feast and contained within it is, an, is that invitation is an invitation to a wedding feast. But unlike any earthly wedding invitation, this invitation is one which we should never refuse. And this fact that we should never refuse the invitation to this wedding will become even more clear as we examine the two different aspects of this parable. The first aspect being the details of this invitation. The, the second aspect is the responses to those invited. So two things. First, the invitation itself. And secondly, the responses to those of those invited. And we begin with the first point, the details of this wedding invitation. Now we begin by thinking about Weddings and weddings generally. What can we say about weddings in general? Well, when we talk about weddings, the first image that pops into our mind is that it's a joyful event. It's a happy day. It's such a happy and glad day, and everyone has a smile on their face. And the second thing that comes into our mind is, is its formality, that weddings, they are formal events. And we see, we understand that weddings are formal events because reservations are usually made months, if not, if not a year ahead. And if you have been involved in planning a wedding, you would know why you try to get that guest list down solid as soon as possible because there are a lot of things involved in planning a wedding and you want all the details now. And so the guest list would even be made 
way ahead of time and confirm and double confirm and triple confirm that you're showing up, you're really showing up. And let me tr check with you again that you are coming. And this is the case because it's such a formal event. It's a serious event. And also we see this, the formal nature of wedding revealed in the fact that the guests are required to dress up nicely. The modern invitation cards, if you, receive, if you recall your latest wedding invitation, you will see a little note about the dress code, whether it's white tie, black tie, or something formal. You see the details being printed, um, the requirement being printed on the invitation card. And children, if you have been to a wedding with your parents, you know this to be true as well, don't you? Because not only do your parents dress up very nicely, but you will also be put into very nice clothing. You will pull out your best clothing from whether Carter's or Baby Gap or perhaps Gap because, well, it's a serious event. It's a formal event. So not only do daddy and mommy look nice, you have to look nice because you don't want to, you don't want to dishonor, dishonor the people who invite you. And you dress up nicely for wedding. Likewise, you, dress, you show up nicely for the wedding feast as well. In fact, for, in many cultures, the wedding and the wedding feast are not two separate events. They are considered one single event. And in many cultures, you would even see couples walking down the middle, the aisle, while the guests are eating because it's just one large event. And besides that, we also see the formality, the formal nature of wedding and wedding feasts in the very food that is offered up and presented during the wedding feasts. We know that during the wedding feasts, the host will always try to go above and beyond because this is such a formal dinner or lunch and that it's, it is so formal that it's not uncommon to see multi-course meals being prepared and offered to whoever attends. So that's weddings in general, that it is a joyful event, but even more than that, it is a very, very formal event. But what about this wedding feast that we have before us in Matthew 22? What can we say about it specifically? Well, specifically, we see that the one in Matthew 22, this is an ultimate feast because this is a royal wedding. A king is preparing a wedding feast for his son, according to verse 2. We also see that this is an ultimate feast, an ultimate formal feast, because a lavish meal is prepared for all the attendees. We see, according to verse 4, oxen and fat calves were slaughtered, dinners prepared. This is such an ultimate feast. You don't just have one cut of meat. You have the whole animal there that you can pick whichever part you desire. And we also see that this is a grand ultimate feast in the fact that all the details are spot on and everything is ready according to verse 4. And surprisingly, to attend this ultimate feast, we see according to this parable, the king does not require 
wedding gifts. There's no registry. The attendees were not required to come bearing gifts. What did the king require? He just required his guests to show up ready. He just, he just required his guests to be prepared to attend. So that's some details, some details regarding this wedding feast in general, that this one, the one in our parable, is an ultimate feast, a royal wedding feast, where lavish meals are prepared, but surprisingly, the ticket to entry is free. And besides the wedding feast itself, our parable also revealed to us the identity, the one who invites. It also gives us the details of the, the one who's doing the inviting, the host. And in our parable, we see that, according to verse 2, who is the host? The host is a king. A king is preparing a wedding feast for his son. And this king is sending out invitation to his guests. And now, as we consider a king's invitation, we realize that, well, since this invitation comes from a king, we know this is not any simple invitation. It's an invitation for slash a summon. Because when a king invites, it actually carries with it the authority of a king. A king's invitation is actually a summon. He's calling people to come. And you know that to be a case because you do not refuse any invitation from a king. To refuse an invitation from a king, it's actually dishonoring that king. And in our case, in this case, since this is a wedding feast of the king's son, we know that invitation carries with it the summoning power of that king as well as his royal son. And we can also tell, we can also see from this parable, and we can also tell that this king has a loving nature behind him. We see this to be the case because this king is one who loves his son, and he loves him so much that the king takes care of all the details for his son, both food and preparation. Likewise, his preparation also showed that this king not only loves his son, but he also cares about his guests that he wants them to be able to enjoy the celebration without burdening themselves with coming, to, coming with gifts or coming to help out with the feast. And we know, this to be, we know this from our modern weddings that in modern day, it's usually the case that we will tell our friend, especially our best friends, to show up a day early to our wedding to help us out with setting up the venue. We will even have spreadsheets made assigning different jobs. Someone, please take care of the bouquet and flower. Someone, please take care of the decoration. Someone, please take care of the cleaning. But that is not the case here with this king. He cares about his, his guests so much. He has concern for them. So all these details, well, he took care of all of them. They just need to come. So this king is a loving king, and he's also a very caring, caring king. And what is, present, what is represented here behind the identity of the king? Who is this king? 
who is, who is this that Jesus is talking about in the parable? Well, our context, context give us some hints. For as early as Matthew chapter 21, beginning from verse 23, just right before this parable, there are two separate parables. And these other parables, the two other ones, including this third one that Jesus spoke, are all in responses to the Jewish people challenging Jesus' authority. For from Matthew 21, 23, we see that the Jewish people challenged and doubted Jesus' authority, and subsequently he told three parables to address them, to warn them of their unbelief, and to reveal to them his very authority. The first parable that was spoken by Jesus speaks of two different sons where Jesus revealed to them that they, the Jews, were unwilling to obey God and unwilling to submit to his authority. The second parable that was spoken by Jesus was the parable of the tenants, where Jesus revealed himself to be the son of God, God who was revealed in that parable as a vineyard owner. And Jesus also revealed in that parable that he will be murdered by the evil tenants because they disregarded the authority of the father and the son and were envious of the son's inheritance. And here in this third parable that addresses the authority of God and people's disregard toward his authority, there are some commonality that got carried over from the second parable. For in the second parable, we see that there's a master, a servant, and a son. Do you also see that in this third parable, there's also a master, there are also servants, and there's also a son. And since both the second parable and the third parable are addressing the same issue of the Jewish people, although they do it differently with different nuances, going after um, expounding in different details, revealing different stuff regarding the kingdom of heaven, still they are in responses, they're in response to the same issue of the Jewish people. And as such, the master, the servants, and, car- uh, and the son, these characters gets carried over. We see that in the second parable, the master is a vineyard owner, which we realize that vineyard owner is God the Father himself, and his vineyard is the house of Israel. Likewise, here, when we come to the third parable, which addresses the same issue of the Jewish people, we also have a master, a king. In this case, it's God the king. And we also have servants. Servants in the second parable were the prophets. Servants in the third parable, also prophets. And likewise, we have a son in the second parable, Christ, the son of God. Third parable, Christ, the son of God, who's also a king. So you see, these elements got carried over along with that theme of the disbelief and the challenge of authority from the Jewish people. With that said, what's going on here? What's going on is that God the Father is preparing a wedding feast for his son. God, who is the almost king, invites the people to an almost feast 
that they do not deserve. And this invitation carries with it the authority of God the King and the authority of His Son. And besides the person inviting, we also see the way He invites or how He invites. In the parable, we see that the King invites His guests by sending out servants. And we see that his invitation went out multiple times in verse 3, in verse 4, and in verse 10. We see that in verse 3 and 4, he invites the original guests twice, which show forth his patience toward them. And even after the guests refused to come after the first invitation, he sent his servants to them a second time, reminding them that everything is ready and they just need to come as we see in verse 4. And it is only after the second refusal that the king sends servants to invite the people on the main roads outside the city to come and attend the feast, which is what the scripture reminds us here in verse 10. And this not only shows the king's patience toward his guests, but also revealed to us his love for his son as he really wants his son's feast to be filled with people, so he sent out his servants to gather as many as they found from outside the city. Again, we ask ourselves, what are we looking at here? What does this mean? Well, we know that this feast is a feast of the Son of God. It is, it is his wedding feast. And as God the Father and the Son are both in heaven to attend to this wedding feast, we must enter into heaven. In fact, that is what the wedding feast represents in this parable, the kingdom of heaven. For just as Christ has said in verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And how do we enter into the kingdom of heaven? Or to put it in another way, how are we invited into the kingdom of heaven? Is it not through the gospel? preached and proclaimed by the servants of God? For in the Old Testament era, God's servants, the prophets, proclaimed the word of God to the people of God and reminded them that salvation is found in God and God alone. The the law, which we read, which they were commanded to obey, reminded them that they cannot fully satisfy it, and it points them to a Christ who is to come, who will be sent by God, deliver them, and who will fulfill God's commandments. And as we know from Hebrews 11 to to Hebrews 12, the Old Testament saints, through their faith in God's promise, and through their faith in the word of God, beheld the heavenly Jerusalem and obtained their salvation. They trust in God's promise, and they look forward to that coming Christ, and they receive their salvation through their faith. Likewise, after the first coming of Christ, Christ sent out apostles to to proclaim the goodness of God, pleading with men to place their trust in Christ, the Holy One of God, as salvation and entrance into heaven cannot be found in any other person on this world. And these days, God continued to send out his ordained ministers to invite people to the kingdom of heaven by proclaiming the gospel 
to the lost. And this invitation, whether it is extended through the prophets of old or whether it is extended through the apostles during the apostolic era or through the ordained ministers nowadays, this invitation carries within the authority of God who sent out his servants. And the fact that the invitation in this passage is the invitation to receive salvation through Christ of God this invitation, then, is what the theologians called external calling. And what is external calling? Well, external calling, according um, the external calling, according to a famous theologian, Louis Burkhoff, is the presentation and offering of salvation in Christ to sinner, together with an earnest exhortation to accept Christ by faith in order to obtain the forgiveness of sin and life eternal. Now, to put it in an even simpler way, now that I can, I can be more concise or more comprehensible than Louis Burkhoff, but to put it in an even simpler way, external calling is God's appointed way of salvation, whereby the servants of God go out to all the corners of this world to proclaim the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ to all the people of all nations and urging all to repent of their sinful ways and to believe in Christ. This is in contrast to the internal calling, which we know is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. Now, children, you, you picked up where this came from, don't you? This is Westminster Shorter Catechism, answer 31, the answer to what is effectual calling. Effectual calling or internal calling is that internal work of the Spirit that enables a person to respond to the external call, to the external invitation. Internal calling is the proper response to that external um, call. But what we see here, what we read in this parable, is not the internal call. Instead, it is the external call that goes out to all the nation and all the people. And having, with that said, we need to consider then what the parables say about those invited. First, we see that the king, he first invite the original guests. The original guests are the people in the king's city. These are his original invitee. And we see them between verses 5 to 7, we see that these people were the people who were safe and secure within a city that is owned by the king. We see that they are safe and secure because they were able to go about their businesses. They were able to attend to their farm. They were able to do whatever they need to do in their daily life without beating their plows into a sword. They are able to just go about their everyday life within the safety and protection um, of the city wall as they were protected by the king. 
And later on, we also see that the king invited those outside the city, and they are described between verses 9 and 10. And these ones are ones on the main roads. And what it means is that these are the ones who are on the major streets leading up to the city, but they are not within the city. They are sort of on the 167 or 405 or I-5, connecting between Seattle and, and Kent, but they are not within Kent proper. They are not within Seattle proper. They are on the highways. These are ones outside the city, and we see the ones that are outside of the city, they are, there are those who are bad, and there are those who are good. Verse 10 revealed to us, both bad and good were invited to the wedding feast. Again, we ask ourselves, what are we seeing here? What is being represented here? Well, the guests who are within the city, these are the Israelites whom God had established as his own people in the land of Canaan. The city in the parable represents Jerusalem, which is the religious and political center of Israel, a city that is in the center of, a, of the Israelites' identity as God's people because within this city of Jerusalem, there is the temple of God where the Israelites go to worship and offer up sacrifices to God. In this connection to Jerusalem, the city, um, the city of peace, and to the God whose temple resides in Jerusalem distinguishes the Jews from those people who are outside a city who lacks such identity and such connection with God. What about those ones who are outside the city on the main roads? Now, these are the Gentiles who do not have any portion, any blessing, or any identity within the city because they are outside. They are outside of the Jewish nation that is identified by the city of Jerusalem and are outside of the protection and blessing of God the King. Yet we know in fullness of time, Gentiles who were not identified with God as his people will receive an invitation not just to come into the earthly city of Jerusalem, but to God's joyful feast, which is in the Jerusalem above, in in heaven. For not too long after this parable was spoken by Christ, the Spirit of Christ would reveal through the pen of Apostle Paul that such fullness of time came as a result of the Israelites, the original guests, their hardness of heart toward God. The fullness of time came as a result of the Israelites' hardness of heart toward God. Romans 11, verse 11 and onward. And the detail of their hardness of heart we will now examine in our second point, which is the responses of those invited. And regarding the the responses, we first see the actions of those who are inside the city. What were their actions? Well, we see in verse 3, when the king's servant reminded them that the feast is ready, and they, what did they do? Verse 3 reveals to us they refused to come. But then again, the king sent for them again. And in verse 4, we see that the king reminded them the dinner has been prepared, animal have been sacri- has, has been slaughtered, and everything is ready. 
What did they do? They not only continued to ignore the king's servant and choose to attend to their own business, they even conspired evil against the king's servants and killed them. And we ask ourselves, why did they do that? What's in their heart? What's their motive? Well, verse, verses 5 and 6 reveal to us that they have, in heart, they have a heart of indifference. Verse 5 revealed to us they have an attitude of indifference toward the king's feast, toward his invitation, toward his summon. They were so indifferent to the king that they found excuses for not attending to such feasts, which they should have been prepared for since they were the original guests. You know, nowadays, if you were, at, you were invited to a wedding, you were recorded, you would put a reminder in your phone, another reminder on your computer, another one on your tablet, and another one on the wall, so that you will be reminded all the time that you have to go to a wedding. Why? Because, well, it costs money to give you a seat, and you need to make sure you show up, so you set up all these reminders. And these ones... These original guests, they have their own reminders too. They should have known. Yet, when the invites came to them, they were indifferent toward such invitation. They were indifferent toward their responsibility as the original guests and indifferent toward the king's summon. Besides this, we also see that they were an ungrateful bunch and who had hostility toward the king's authority. In fact, they were so ungrateful toward the king who owns the city they dwell in, who gave them their safety and protection, allowing them to go about their businesses, that what did they do? They refused the summon to a free banquet. And you see how, do you see how ungrateful they, they are? Here the king who protected them who allowed them to go about their daily lives, is now requiring them to bring gifts, bring frankincense and myrrh. Instead, he just told them to come, just come. Yet, in what, what did, how did they respond? To this one who gave them protection, allowing them to go about their livelihood, to go about their life? Well, even when it's a free banquet, they say no. They'd rather do their own things. And not only were they ungrateful, they were hateful toward the king, so much so that they killed his servants who brought the invitation. And as a result, these ones who were the original guests, they were destroyed along with all the things they used as excuses for not attending the king's feast. Verse 7 says, The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroy those murderers and burn their city. They were judged as unworthy for the feast due to their indifference, due to their ungratefulness, due to their hateful attitude toward the king and his authority. Now what about those who are outside of the city? How do they respond to such invitation? We see those who are outside the city, they respond they responded with a welcome, unlike the original guests. In fact, they received such invitation 
so well that the wedding hall is filled with people gathered from the streets. And verse 10 described that to us. It was, the wedding hall was filled. And many, many of them were accepted, but there, within them, there was also one who, who also had that attitude of indifference. And that man was the one in verse 12 who knew that he was invited to a royal wedding feast, but he still did not show up with proper attire. He knew that he was attending an extraordinary feast, but he didn't care enough to prepare for it. He was one of those who went there for the free food. I heard I hear that oxen and fat calves have been slaughtered. Let me go there and enjoy the free meal. But then, even then, he did not bother to pay attention to the occasion and dress accordingly. This is the guy who showed up at the wedding with his flip-flops or his lounge, lounge attire, his sweatpants. He knows there is free food, but he did not care for, about the function. And at the end, we see that he disrespected the gracious king by his indifference toward the occasion that he was invited to. And what's the result? The ones who welcomed the invitation and went prepared with wedding garments, nothing is said of them. It is assumed then they remain in that wedding feast. What about the one who lacked proper garment? He was casted out into the outer darkness for torment. His ending, his end, was just like those original guests. Why? Because he had a similar attitude to the original guests. Although he showed up, he still had a heart of indifference. And what are we seeing here? As we have said earlier, the original guests were the Israelites, who in their hardness of heart disobeyed the word of God, ignored his call to draw near to him, choosing instead to be concerned with their earthly status and earthly goods, which can be seen in their turning of the temple into a marketplace. And God sent prophets to them in ancient time, calling them to repent and return to God. And this is not the first time they have done so, turning the temple into a marketplace. For those of you who are here, when Pastor Bill went through Malachi, you would have recall that even in Malachi's day, they were turning the temple into a marketplace. And God sent prophets to them, calling them to repent. And likewise, these people in Jesus' time, they were doing the same thing. And in the fullness of time, God sent John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, to them. Yet the leaders of the Israelites rejected him and allowed him to be killed by Herod. And they did so because they were indifferent to the God who sent to them his prophets. Likewise, when Jesus, the Son of God, when he stood in the middle of the temple of Jerusalem, in, in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem and taught in it, the leaders of the Israel challenged his authority and hated him, so much so that they would conspire to kill him. And they would succeed in doing so later on. Knowing this, 
And foreseeing this, Christ, out of his compassion, warns them of the judgment that will come as a result of their actions and foretold the going forth of the gospel to all the people, to all the nations, to the Gentiles who are outside the city, to the Gentiles who have no connection with Israel. And when the gospel of Christ went to the Gentiles, the Gentiles welcomed it, unlike the Jews who challenged Jesus' role as the Christ. Still, among those who received the external call and were gathered into the physical body of God's people, into the church, there were those who were not prepared for the wedding feast. There are those who are gathered in, but still show up without the proper garment. So at the end of this rather straightforward parable, the key question is this. Are we prepared for the wedding feast in heaven? Are we prepared for the wedding feast in heaven? Since we are gathered into the church by the external proclamation of the gospel, but how are we, in, how are we doing in keeping our eyes and our hearts Focus upon the ultimate destination of this invitation to that wedding feast which is in heaven, to that kingdom of heaven. Saints, are we so distracted by our worldly affairs? Are we so distracted by politics, the latest search warrants or the affidavits? Are we so distracted by the economy, the continuing recession, and more money to be pumped in into the economy to drive out inflation? Are we so distracted but perhaps by sports? The Mariners are finally making a run for the playoffs. Are we so distracted by entertainment? And I have no example here. Sorry, I don't know anything about entertainment. Are we so distracted by all these various things that we take our eyes off from God the Father who sent us this invitation? Are we so distracted that we take our eyes away from Christ, who is at the center of this wedding feast? Saints, having been invited to God's heavenly kingdom by this external invitation, we need to make sure that we are prepared for it by examining our hearts to see whether we are truly convinced of our sins and misery and whether we are fully embracing Jesus Christ and depending upon him for all things. For such, for these are the proper responses to the outward invitation, our call of the gospel. And these are the things we should have done and continue to do if we truly have faith in Jesus Christ. For it is only through faith in Jesus Christ where we receive the benefit of his blood, which washes away our sins and his righteousness, which is the garment that we need to attend this wedding feast in heaven. For no, no sin, sin, sinful things can enter into heaven, only the, by the blood of Jesus that washes us clean and by the righteousness of Christ, which covers us, will anyone have the righteous garment to enter into that holy heavenly realm and enter into that feast. It is not our works, it is not our businesses. It's, it is not our revenue, our profits. It's not our accomplishments, our 
beautiful resume that get us into heaven. But it is only through Christ and Christ alone will we have the proper garment to enter into God's presence and into his feast. And for friends and young ones who are still unsure about this gospel invitation, please do not be indifferent about the gospel. Do not, be, do not let Sunday service simply be a family function or a social event. But see clearly what is going on right now and what's going on every Sunday. God, through his servants, are extending to you an invitation to his feast in heaven. So use this day to talk to your family or friend who invited you. Or talk to those who sit around you about the true meaning of the gospel. Do not be indifferent about, do not be indifferent to this invitation from God invitation to salvation in Jesus Christ because in refusing God's invitation you are refusing God's authority you are claiming that there is someone more powerful with more authority than God so that you can refuse him and you are also in refusing him you are also claiming that there is something better than what God has prepared in heaven So please take heart. Please take heart that at the end, there are only two outcomes to those who are invited. One is eternal joy in in the feast in heaven. The other is weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness of hell. For many are called, few are chosen. The pathway to heaven is a narrow one. May God continue to increase the faith of you saints to continue to rely upon Christ alone. And may he also grant you who have yet to believe faith to respond to his gracious and free invitation to heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for truly You have worked all things. You have prepared the heavenly places. And you have sent your son. Even you have sent your servants, including including afterward your son, to extend to us this invite into heaven. So help us then to receive it. Receive it faithfully. And Lord, through our faith, help us to be dressed for such joyous occasion in heaven above. Truly help us to rely upon Christ for all things. Help us to submit to his kingly authority over us. We give you thanks, and we pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn number 469. How sweet and awesome is this place, hymn 469. Let us stand.
Let us bow our head and prepare and pray for the offering that we were about, that we will give up. Father, we pray that as, as you have so blessed us, now as we offer our, our tithe and offering as part of our worship, you will bless this fund and allow it to be used for the outgoing of your kingdom throughout all the corners of this community, to all the corners of this state, this nation, and to all the corners of this world. May, you, may your gospel continue to go forth in the invitation to your heavenly feast extended through the wise use of this fund. We give you thanks and we pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's bow our head for the closing prayer. Lord, as we depart from here, we pray that you will bless us with the blessing that you have given to your people. We pray that you would bless us and keep us. We pray that you would make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. We pray that you would lift up your countenance upon us and give us peace. We pray all these in the name of our risen and exalted high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen.